Well, welcome to Faith Covenant Church, and thank you so much for being here today. Whether you are here in person enjoying the fact that you got to choose your own seat, yeah, or whether you're worshiping with us online, we're just grateful that you are here with us. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith, and this is week three in a series that we're doing called Big Ten. But before we dig into that, I've got something that I want to talk about that has to do with VBS. Now, uh, as you just heard, VBS is coming up, and we just want to mention to you, this VBS this year is a really big deal. It is an event for us that is like the first big event we're doing post-COVID regulations, and we want it to be incredible. And so one of the things you can do to help us with VBS is send your kids and send your neighbor's kids and uh, find someone at the supermarket and tell them about it. We have this goal of 125 kids at our VBS this year, and the only way we're gonna do that is with your participation and helping us get kids there. So let me encourage you, if you've got kids VBS age, make sure you got them signed up for it. And like I said, if you've got other people in your life that have kids that you really care about, your neighbor, someone at the supermarket, uh, someone that you meet at the car dealership, tell them so that they can send their kids to VBS as well. And with VBS, we are doing um, this huge, massive, amazing party called the Joyful Nights VBS Block Party that's happening the Friday after VBS, and we would love your help making that an incredible event. So if you're willing to stand at an inflatable obstacle course and make sure kids don't kill themselves, we want you to help. Uh, if you're good at face painting, we want you to help. If you just like standing around and watching kids have a great time while you man a cotton candy machine, we want your help. So make sure if you're willing to help with that that you let myself or Pastor Laura know and we will get you plugged in so that we can make VBS and the Block Party an incredible event for everyone who attends. Now, like I said, this is our third week in a series we're calling Big Ten. And we've all had different encounters with the Ten Commandments. Growing up, my church really loved the Ten Commandments. In every children's classroom, we had a poster that looked like this where the Ten Commandments were portrayed on what looked to me to be tombstones, uh, which, by the way, is not the greatest imagery when you're trying to teach kids that the Ten Commandments bring life. But on every poster of the Ten Commandments, they were split onto two different tombstones, five on one side, five on another. Well, I went to seminary, and I learned that most likely... The two tablets that Moses brought down with him from the mountain were identical tablets. Both tablets had the entirety of the Ten Commandments written on them. Why? Well, because in ancient Near Eastern law, when commands were given, each party to those commandments would get a copy. So one tablet was symbolically the people's copy for them to remember what God had asked of them. And one copy was symbolically God's copy where he marked down exactly what he had asked of the people. When I learned this, my mind was blown. Was everything from Sunday school that I learned a lie? Well, that's a big part of why we're doing this series. There are just a ton of misconceptions about the Ten Commandments. And one of those misconceptions is that the Ten Commandments are an antiquated list of rules designed by religious people to keep us from having fun. What we're talking about in this series is that actually the Ten Commandments are something that God has given us to be foundational principles meant to free us to live our best lives. 
while at the same time protecting us from a bunch of stuff that has the possibility to destroy our lives. So each week our goal is to take one of the Ten Commandments and to see how it's meant to help us live this way in our lives. But before we dive in today, let's just pray together. Lord, we are thankful again to be here, to have the chance to, to mingle and interact and talk and enjoy the community that you've put us in. Lord, we are also thankful for the fact that the Evangelical Covenant Church was able to meet this week for its um, annual convention where we talked about our dreams and our hopes and our desires for the church as a movement. Lord, we want to pray for our church as we continue to live out the identity that you've given us. We do think of some specific people in our church who are struggling with illnesses. Um, a few of our kids have cancer, Lord. A few of our beloved members are dealing with various illnesses, and so we ask that you help them, that you give them peace and comfort that only comes from you, that you lead the doctors through the treatments that they need to have so that recovery in life can be brought. Lord, we're thankful for the work that you do, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So last week, Pastor Mike hit on the first and second commandments, and this week we are talking about the third one. So what is the third commandment? Well, here's how the NIV translates it. It says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Or if you're used to a bit more of the traditional language, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now we're going to take, take a deep dive into the specifics of what this means, but let me just give you the big idea of what the third commandment is getting at. And that is this. The way we talk about God matters. And the third commandment, it asks us to not speak of God in ways that detract from the way that he's revealed himself to us. It's as simple as that. The third commandment encourages us to remember that the way we talk about God is important. Now in 2018, Pew Research did a poll to try and gauge perspectives, American perspectives on God. The primary concern that they were trying to answer was this. When Americans say they believe in God, what do they mean? And here's what they found out. They found out that at that point in time, roughly 80% of Americans believed in a higher power. But what people thought about that higher power varied dramatically. Some people said they believed in the God of the Bible. Some people described God as a non-personal entity that exists but is relatively unknowable. Some people said God is real but he doesn't have the power to interfere in human lives. Some people said that there is an amorphous spiritual force that breathes good into all existence and sometimes acts to protect them or nudge their life in a positive direction. The conceptions of who God is tend to be extremely varied and diverse. And that question, who is God, or what is God like, it's actually one of the key concerns with the third commandment. But for us to, to see what I mean here, we actually need a bit of background information. By the time that we encounter the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, there is a lot of story that has already happened. God didn't just randomly decide one day to write down a list of 10 rules on some stone tablets and then find a random dude standing on a mountain and say to him, hey, this is what I want humans to do. 
He didn't say, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to give those pesky humans a bunch of rules to follow. No, the Ten Commandments, they happen as a part of a larger story in the book of Exodus. And when we take some time to think about the themes and specifics of that story, we get a better understanding of the why and the what behind our commandment today. So one of those themes that's really important is the question, who is God? Think about it. As the book of Exodus opens up, we are reintroduced to a people group, the Israelites. And they, as a people, have been uh, enslaved for hundreds of years. They've been abused and persecuted by the powerful Egyptians. It has been a dreadful experience. They're forced into brutal labor, building massive projects under duress for Pharaoh. Not only that, but Pharaoh is now afraid of how many Israelites there are, so he undertakes what's basically a genocide and systematically starts to exterminate all of the newborn baby boys in Egypt. Things are bad, and the people cry out in pain. Well, these things, they don't go unnoticed by God, and so God sets out to liberate his people from the oppression that they find themselves in. So he calls an Israelite refugee who is living in the wilderness as a shepherd to liberate these people from captivity. And in Exodus 3, we're thrown into one of the most famous stories of the Bible, where this God who honestly, at this point in time of the Bible, we don't really know that much about other than the fact that he created everything and made a deal with a guy named Abraham. But this God, he shows up to Moses in a burning bush, and this is how Exodus explains it. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, 
What's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is a huge part of the story. Moses, he has this divine encounter, and he's told that he's being sent to save the Israelites. And I love the question that Moses presents. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? This question that Moses asks is the question that God is going to be answering for both the Jews and for Pharaoh and the Egyptians for literally the next 17 chapters in the book of Exodus. You see, in the ancient Near East, names carried more weight than they do now. A person's name was meant to carry a sense of the person's character. A good example of this is a guy named Nabal. There's this guy in 1 Samuel 25 named Nabal. Nabal had a bunch of sheep, a bunch of shepherds, and a bunch of land. And his shepherds and flocks wandered all this land. And before King David was king, he had a large group of warriors that he kind of wandered with. And they wandered the same land that Nabal grazed his flocks. And David and his men, they protected Nabal's sheep and shepherds from predators and bandits. Well, when it came time for Nabal to shear sheep and make some profit... David sent a couple men to collect payment that they deserved for protecting the flocks from danger. Well, Nabal, he refused to pay. Now the name Nabal, any guesses what Nabal means? It means fool or idiot. And that's a really good descriptor of Nabal's character because you know who thinks it's a good idea to refuse to pay a small army the money that they earned protecting your sheep? A fool does. Only a fool says... You know what's a good idea? To not pay that well-armed, experienced group of warriors the money they deserve for keeping my flock safe all winter. Names were meant to carry a sense of a person's character. And so when Moses says to the burning bush, suppose that I do go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your father sent me, and they ask me, what's his name? Moses is saying, hey, if I, if I go to them, they're going to ask me, what's his name? What is he like? What's his character? Who is this God of our forefathers that has sent you to us? The question, what is his name, is a question about who is this God? And so God, he does something incredible. He answers Moses' inquiry into the nature and character of who he is by saying, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now we don't pick up on all of this in English, so let me try and break it down a bit. First, God says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. Now the verb that we translate is I am, 
It's actually the Hebrew verb hayah, like a, a karate chop. That's how I remembered it in my Hebrew class. Hayah! And it, <laughs> yep. It carries the idea of self-existence, of being. It means to be or to have the quality of existing. And so when God says, I am who I am, he's saying, hey, I am. I just am. I'm self-existent. I am the one who is and was and will be. I simply am. And then directly afterwards, God gives Moses the proper name that we know God by in the Old Testament. Anytime in scripture you see the Lord in all capitals, it's the word we use to stand in for the proper name God gave us, which is Yahweh. So God says, say to the Israelites, the Lord, and my editing did not go completely the way it should have in the slide. Lord should be all capitals there. But he says, say to the Israelites, the Lord, or Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. And here's where it's all connected. The proper name Yahweh is based on the same verb, hayah, that makes up the previous phrase. And so in this instance, God is using the proper name that he has often been referred by in the book of Genesis and is explaining to Moses what it means. He's saying, tell them, I am Yahweh. I am. I am who I am, the self-existent one who is and was and will be. Now, honestly, this is kind of an enigmatic answer. We're like, that's cool and all, but I still don't really know what God's like except for the fact that he's self-existent. Well, that's where the rest of the story of Exodus comes in. Because in Exodus, this God, Yahweh, will spend the rest of the book showing the Israelites exactly who he is and what he's like. If you jump ahead two chapters, Moses is having his first big encounter with Pharaoh, and this is what it says. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh asked the same question, doesn't he? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And this is what I want you to see. Everyone in the story is asking the same question. Moses asked it. Pharaoh asked it in a mocking way. Everyone is asking, who is this God? What's his name? What's he like? What's his character? Why should I listen to him? Who is this Yahweh? And what we see in the next 15 chapters of Exodus is that God is eager to help everyone see exactly who he is. Take, for example, the first three signs that God gives Moses to help him trust that God is really with him. I'm going to read a little passage here, and in the passage, God is showing Moses some signs that he can perform on both the Israelites and Pharaoh to give legitimacy to his claims. Check it out. Moses answered, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? And they say, the Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, what's in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. 
So Moses reached out and took a hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, the Lord said, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Now, these may seem like random signs to us, a snake, leprosy, some water that turns into blood, but each of them is meant to communicate something about who God is. In Egypt, the sun god Ray was associated with a snake. God changing the staff into a snake and then back into a staff was meant to show that he is the true, all-powerful God, not Ray. And in Egypt, leprosy was a big issue something that people thought was incurable. So when God makes Moses' hand leprosy and then leprous and then heals it, he's showing, I am the God who has power over your body, over sickness and health. Nothing is outside my reach. And the sign with the water of the Nile becoming blood, the Nile River for the Egyptians was the source of life. Its flood deposited fertile soils on the delta. It provided water that was used for everything from drinking to fishing to industry. The Nile was what provided life and wealth to the Egyptians. And when God turns it into blood, he's saying, I have power over all that sustains you, over all that gives you health, life, wealth. Now, I, I wish I had time to talk about all of Exodus in excruciating detail. That would make me very happy. But I don't have that time, so let me just give you a few more examples. You know the, the famous plagues that God sends on Egypt? Frogs, flies, hail, livestock dying, darkness. All of these show his omnipotence. He has power over the sun, the weather, the animals. And then after the Israelites have left Egypt and they're stuck between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, God literally splits the Red Sea in half, allowing them to walk on dry ground. It shows that God's their deliverer, their savior. Or the fact that God fed the Israelites every day with manna and quail that would just appear in the mornings. God gives people what they need to survive. He's our sustainer. Or think about the pillar of cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night that led the people through the wilderness. God is the one who guides and leads us. Or consider the fact that God didn't give up on the people, even though the Israelites literally balked and complained about everything. God is gracious. He's merciful. He's patient. Everything that happens to the Israelites as they approach Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments is showing who God is. This God is all-powerful, all-knowing, our provider, our savior, our sustainer, gracious, patient, but who's also just and holy. 
At the beginning of this ordeal, God told Moses, I am who I am, I am Yahweh. And then through experience after experience after experience, he helps the Israelites and also Pharaoh and the Egyptians build a nuanced and complex vision of who exactly this Yahweh is. Please see the point. God cares about people knowing who he is. And he goes to great length to help the people see and know exactly who he is. And so by the time we get to the Ten Commandments in the story of Exodus, God has given the people an idea of his nature, and he tells them that part of being his people is trying to speak about him in a way that does justice to who he has revealed himself to be. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Do you see how it works together? All through Exodus, every major event and occurrence, God has been answering this question. What's your name? What are you like? Who is this God? And he says, I'm Yahweh. I brought you out of Egypt. You've experienced who I am. Now, this name, the words that you use to represent who I am, what my character is, don't misuse that. The way that we talk about God matters because God cares about people knowing who he is. Now we need some specificity here, so let's ask the question, what does it mean to misuse the name of the Lord or to use the name of the Lord your God in vain? Like we mentioned before, names in the ancient Near East were meant to carry a sense of a person's character. They signified essence. And the Hebrew word that we translate as misuse um, or as vain, literally translated, means to bring something to worthlessness or emptiness. So if we translated this passage hyper-literally, it would say something like, do not lift up the name of Yahweh your God toward nothingness. Basically, Misusing God's name is to use it in such a way that detracts from the way that he has revealed himself to us. Now, that's a pretty broad definition, so let me just give you three common ways that we might do this. First, we take the Lord's name in vain when we use his name irreverently or flippantly. If you grew up in a house like mine, uh, dropping an oh my God in front of your parent was akin to dropping the F-bomb. Uh, it incurred swift and terrifying justice, usually in the fashion of having your mouth washed out with a bar of Irish Spring soap. Still remember the flavor? <laughs> we were not to say, oh my God, as a flippant expression. And this never made sense to me. Why does it matter? Well, to keep it short, in its least offensive ways, referring to God in a flippant manner is simply speaking about God with any thought to what God is actually like. OMG, Becky, look at her car. In that instance, thank you, some of you got my joke. <laughs> In that instant, we are not thinking about God as he has revealed himself to be. We aren't talking about him in a way that reflects his nature. At first, this seems superficial, but in reality, referring to God in a way like that is just not doing justice to who he is. And you know, in its worst forms, like when we use Jesus' name as an expression of exasperation, you know, you stub your toe or you're angry with your wife and you shout out Jesus' name and his title in frustration and anger, that becomes a way 
that we add negative connotations to God that just shouldn't be there. We also take the Lord's name in vain when we use his name to malign what he stands for. For many years, certain segments of the church justified slavery by teaching that people with a darker skin tone were descendants of Noah's son, Ham. And since in Genesis 9, Ham was cursed to be a servant of servants, the argument was that God basically approved of slavery. Now, we know this is not a correct understanding of the Bible. But the Bible is often maligned and used to support things that are not true. When we teach things that are not true to Scripture as if they are from God, we detract from the nature and character of God, and we use his name in vain. Saying that God stands for something that he does not detracts from how he's revealed himself to us. Third, we take the Lord's name in vain when we use it to bolster our agenda, not his. Now, just a goofy example. When I was in middle school, I had this middle school girlfriend from my church youth group, and I broke up with her. And all my friends were like, man, why'd you break up with her? And I wanted them to be on my side of the situation. So I said, I just really feel like God was telling me that she wasn't the one. <laughs> now, what it really was, was that I didn't like the way that her breath smelled. Uh, but if I told my friends that, they would have thought that I was shallow and stupid. So I used God as a way to give legitimacy to my choice so that others would support me. That's a dumb middle schooler example, but we do this. Whether it's politicians who don't care about Jesus using his name to garner support, or if it's justifying that big purchase you know you shouldn't do, but you want to do it, so you say you just feel like God is giving you this opportunity and you're going to take it. Whatever the case is, we do this. Now, just as a, uh, a disclaimer, I think that it's an awesome thing to be able to say, I've spent a lot of time thinking and praying and consulting with people who I value their opinions. And based on my understanding of God and the wisdom that he teaches, I think this is the choice that I should make. That is an amazing thing to be able to say. But when we really want to do something, or when we really want others to do something, and we use God merely as a way to legitimize our choice before others, when we do this, we run the risk of ascribing to God something that he didn't say. Or maybe even worse, we make him subservient to us rather than us to him. And this detracts from the way that he's revealed himself to us. Now, those are just a few ways we do it. There are many more, but basically misusing God's name is to use it in such a way that detracts from the way that he's revealed himself to us. Now, in this series, we're talking about how the Ten Commandments are not just stuffy old rules meant to ruin our fun, but are actually wonderful gifts from God meant to help us live our best lives. So to wrap it up, we've got to ask the question, why is the third commandment good for me? Two quick things to think about. First, the third commandment is highly relational. The fact that God entrusted his name to us to begin with shows this imminent personal relationship that he has with us. He's not a distant God. He's not a non-communicative God. He's with us. He shared his name with us. He asks us to talk to him and about him. And the third commandment 
it reminds us that just like we don't want our spouse or our friends to be using our names in a way that detract from who we are, part of having a healthy relationship with God is trying to speak about Him in ways that are true to His nature. One of the best pieces of marriage advice that I ever got from a mentor was he said that any time I talk about my wife to other people, it should be clear to them how amazing I think she is. Now, I'm not always the best at doing this, but his reasoning was that if I spend all of my time complaining to my bros or only sharing stories about dumb stuff my wife does, it does not show her or others that I love her and think that she is incredible. Part of having a good and healthy relationship with my wife is being intentional in how I speak about her to other people. Because the truth is, I do think my wife is pretty amazing. And I want to speak about her in ways that help other people see that. It's not that different when it comes to how we speak about God to others. The way I speak about God should reflect the type of relationship that I want to have with him. But there's another part of this too. One of the cool things about teachings in the Bible is that as we learn more about brain and social science, um, we see a lot that the biblical teachings are often reinforced by modern research. And a lot of recent research has shown that the way we speak about people impacts the way that we think about them. I watched this super interesting documentary on PBS because I'm boring about, um, <laughs> about propaganda and language in World War II. And one of the questions that military leaders had to grapple with is how do we get our boys to willingly kill their boys? Because at the start of the war, especially in the European theater, they had found that they had a significant amount of soldiers who were intentionally shooting above their enemies' heads because they had a hard time grappling with the idea of killing another human being. So what did the military do? It started ramping up derogatory language and its broadcast and propaganda to the troops. So no longer was it the Germans, now it was the Krauts, or those monsters, or those barbarians, or a whole bunch of other words we don't use in church. <laughs> they found that if they could get troops to more consistently use dehumanizing language to talk about their enemies, they could get a much higher percentage of the troops to be willing to kill. Because it's a lot easier to get your boys to go out and smash those bloodthirsty krauts than it is to get your boys to go out and kill all those other boys and sons and fathers. They understood that the way we talk about things impacts the way we think about things. And I think this is true when it comes to God as well. If I make patterns of flippantly referring to God or using him to bolster my agenda, or ascribing to him things that are false, it doesn't help me build a great and joy-giving vision of who he is. But if we're intentional over time about the way that we talk about God, and what we're willing to ascribe to him, and how we refer to him, it tends to impact how we think about him. And having great thoughts about God is a life-giving, a life-giving thing. So, what should we do with all this? Well, I want to leave you with the words of Jesus in the Lord's Prayer when he says, Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Or in more modern language, may your name be brought glory. Church, God cares about how we speak of him. So let us try to speak of him in a way that does justice to his nature and character, in a way that brings him glory and honor, not in a way that detracts from who he is. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your Ten Commandments and how they aren't just a a set of stuffy rules, but a a set of foundational principles from you that are life-giving. God, we ask today that you help us talk about you in ways that do justice to your nature. Help us be intentional about our words so that we may represent you correctly to others and in so doing can build a vision of you that gives us life. Father, as we go from here as a people, help us live out your ways in a way that's pleasing to you and good for us. We ask this in your name. Amen.